all want to know things like what are their store sales like over the past three to five years? And then I'm going to calculate the rent to sales ratio. So I look at things like that with the property to see how it's performing. And then obviously I'm going to look on the market, see what's going on, see what's sold, see what's being asked. And based on that, that's how I decide where to price this asset. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. This is your host, Dr. Michael McManus, and we are here today with Dan Lukowicz. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Dan is a seasoned real estate veteran with over 15 years of experience in many facets of the real estate industry. He started his career, and this is like a lot of people, house hacking, moved on to flipping houses in and around Detroit, and eventually created a company called Renaissance Real Estate Ventures, which specializes in acquisition, financing, renovation, and resale of single-family residences in the booming city of Detroit, Michigan. Before joining Encore Real Estate Investment Services as Senior Director, Dan was a Senior Advisor at Fortis Net Lease, specializing in commercial real estate investment sales. Dan is also a former Business Director and Executive for Amazon in Detroit, Michigan. Currently, Dan is Senior Director of Encore Real Estate Investment Services and specializes in shopping centers, medical business buildings, pharmacies, quick service restaurants, automotive repair and parts stores, as well as resorts. He has five lovely children and resides in Birmingham, Michigan with his wife, Brady, and enjoys running, boxing, lifting weights, yoga, and playing acoustic guitar. That's a great bio, Dan. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much. So this is a funny one because I'm in Green Bay, but Detroit still gets a bad knock. What's going on in Detroit that makes it great right now? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny because people like all across the country are like, oh, Detroit is probably like a terrible city and it's in the toilet and this and that. I feel like the news is like 10 years behind or 15 years behind that. The word hasn't gotten out. So, I mean, Metro Detroit has always been solid. Detroit has suffered dearly over the decades, but it's really, it's revitalized. It's really seen a huge comeback. We're one of the few cities in the country that has all four of our major sports teams playing in the downtown area. There's been tremendous investment, both in the residential multifamily side of things, as well as office and business investment. And it's definitely a great city and great things going on here. That's awesome. I love the combination here of boxing and yoga, you know, for yeah. the... <laughs> yeah, I mean, the bio maybe is a little outdated. I still do yoga. I haven't really been boxing recently, but it's something that I'd gotten into and really enjoyed. But definitely yoga is my main form of exercise at this point. It's amazing as you get older, how things like yoga help you feel better when you were younger, at least for me, it was hard to be patient enough for that. Right. Yeah. All right. So you started out in some house flipping and residential and now moved on to commercial. And that's a lot of what we focus on here is the commercial side. So just explain to the audience, because I think a lot of doctors and a lot of our people listening are newer to commercial real estate. What was it that drove you to move beyond the single family world? Yeah, great question. So I think that it was, if I look back at what was going on at that point in time, I mean, I was doing a heavy volume of flips. I was flipping four or five homes at a time. So that's more than a full-time job to manage that. Started spilling over into ancillary aspects of the business. 
buying diesel box trucks and pickup trucks and dumpsters and trailers and jackhammers and paint sprayers. And I really got more involved than I probably should have in the day-to-day actual management of the renovation of the houses. So by the time I was kind of phasing out of that, um, I was really tired. I was quite tired. I was doing it at that time exclusively in the city of Detroit, which at the time was not the sexy place it is today in terms of real estate investment. And there was a lot of theft. We had a lot of cabinets and furnaces and ACs being stolen, calls in the middle of the night from the police department. So it really just was so hands-on and it got very tiring. So when I started investigating commercial brokerage, what I realized was that A, I would need very little of my own money, whereas in house flipping, I'm using a lot of my own money and money that I'm borrowing from other people and signing personal guarantees on, right? I could do it from anywhere. I didn't have to physically be there. I didn't have to physically do any labor. It was very much hands-off from that perspective. And if I looked at my numbers, my best flip was probably a mediocre to average commercial real estate commission. So I really felt like there was opportunity and it made a lot of sense for me to make that transition. So now you're working more in the triple net lease world. Yeah. As an investor, what makes this a more attractive place to be? Yeah, great question. So number one would just be the passive nature of the investment. In terms of triple of net lease, there's a lot of different types. The kind of cookie cutter bread and butter of net lease is what's called the absolute triple net lease. For those who maybe don't know what that means, your rent that you collect from your tenant, let's say it's $150,000 in base rent. That's net to you because the tenant actually pays for all the taxes. The tenant pays for the insurance. The tenant pays to maintain the building, to plow the snow and cut the grass and do the landscape and anything that's necessary, they pay for. And it's 100% hands-off. So that passive nature of an absolute triple net lease is very attractive to people. Also, the stability and security. Typically, your lease is going to be with a major national tenant that has hundreds, if not thousands of locations. So if that particular location struggles and maybe they have to vacate or it's not doing well, the tenant is still going to pay you your rent because they're guaranteeing the lease by the entire corporation. So that stability and security is really excellent. And another factor is going to be the predictability, right? Every single net lease has written into the lease what to expect for the entire 15, 20, 25 years of the term. And that can be all the way down to what are the annual rental escalations? What does that look like? So you really know what you're getting into and everything is cut and dry, black and white on the lease. So that's also another factor that is essential. And then the last thing I'll say is just like the location, the fundamentals of the underlying real estate are often incredible, right? These are often national retailers, right? Think about Walgreens, McDonald's, things like Chick-fil-A that are in many cases, main on main corners, very high traffic counts very high visibility, typically signalized intersections with great ingress and egress. What that means is that the real estate has value, even the dirt has value. So if you ever do want to retenant, you're stuck with something that can continue to produce income in different scenarios. People ask me a lot when talking about these types of tenants, well, Chick-fil-A is doing great. Why doesn't Chick-fil-A own the property? Why are they renting? It's a good question. I think the simple answer is that these companies, with the exception of a few, maybe like McDonald's, are not real estate companies, right? And they'd rather deploy that capital in their business, right? The same reason that, not the case always, but many franchisees of fast food restaurants don't own their buildings because they'd rather take that 2 or $3 million per building that the property is worth and use it to open a few more stores. So it's really a matter of capital deployment and where you think you're going to get your best bang for your buck. And quite frankly, Chick-fil-A is going to trade at like a four cap roughly, right? So 
Chick-fil-A would be better to use that incredibly high sale price in their operation rather than hold it and only get a 4% potential return. So it's different than the average person gets told your house will be your greatest investment, the better to own than rent. And you can make arguments against that one there too. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, people call it an investment, but it's not an investment insofar as it's not a cash flow positive investment vehicle at all. Yeah. I just love that question because it helps people understand that businesses can get a better return on that. And so there's a right. difference between if you're an investor and you want to own the building that Chick-fil-A leases from you, even if that returns 5%, you're not working for that 5%. They're paying everything and they're just sending you a check every month right. where they take that money and they earn more than 5% because they're actually working on it. There's kind of the difference between what the investor gets and what they get. Yes, exactly. Out of all the different asset classes that you're selling right now, what's the one that excites you the most? I've always loved quick service restaurant. I love it. I think it's fascinating. I like that it's not like just a building and a lease. There's fundamentals like rent to sales ratios and there's profit and loss reports you have to go through and you have to see how the store is doing and what are the demographics like. I think they're dynamic and exciting. I like them a lot. I also like, honestly, I like vacant properties. I like the opportunity, you know, to buy a vacant property and then retenant it and repurpose it and make more sense. And I just like the revitalization that it gives to the surrounding shopping center and the community and just the neighborhood in general. So I like it all, but those are the things that really fascinate me. That's kind of a big gap in returns, would it be? So the single tenant leased out the Chick-fil-A yeah. because it's so stable is a lower return. Yeah. And then, but the vacant building, because commercial properties will often trade on the money they're bringing in, it's going to yes. be able to buy at a much lower price. But if you lease it up and sell it, that can be a very high return. Yeah. Like obviously with my background, I love taking something that's in X situation, doing stuff to it, right? And then making it better and just kind of creating equity out of thin air. And you can do that in that lease with a vacant building and retending it. I mean, there's other strategies too. Like, that we can talk about later, but there's other strategies to build that equity. And I like that concept. That is always fascinating to me. Well, let's get back to that one a second. So when you're leasing up a Chick-fil-A, is that just a standard, like here's the building and here's the price? Or when you were talking about their profit ratios, or is this one that you're building their cash flow into their lease? Now, are you talking about when I'm going to sell a property that, for example, is leased by Chick-fil-A? Any of those, really. I just want to dig into kind of the what's going on on a deeper level when you're looking at leasing a building like that. So just to clarify, I do some leasing, but mostly I focus on investment sales. So when I'm looking at a building like that, I'm looking at a variety of different variables. So I want to look at the traffic counts, right? I want to look at how many vehicles pass in front of this property. I want to see what's the access like? Can you get in and out easily? What's the visibility like? Did the city plant a bunch of trees in front of the pylon sign or can you see right into the building from the street, right? I want to know, are there other national retailers in the immediate area? That's usually a good sign. What's the population density like? How many people live within one, three, and five miles of this property, right? I want to know how close is it to major retailers like regional malls or like uh, Walgreens or sorry, not Walgreens, Walmart or, or um, something like uh, a Lowe's or Home Depot or huge big boxes, things like that. And then I want to dig into the actual essence of the operator, right? Because I'm not just selling the building, I'm selling the lease, which is guaranteed by the operator. So are they a three unit operator or are they a 300 unit operator, right? Obviously, they're a 300 unit operator, it's going to affect the cap rate in a positive way, more so than a three unit operator. 
I'm going to see, are there any personal guarantees that are signed on the lease? Is there an individual with $50 million of net worth who has signed on the lease? That's going to make a difference. And then I'm going to want to dig in to see how the store is doing that specific site, not just the franchise in general. So I'll want to know things like, what are their store sales like over the past three to five years? And then I'm going to calculate the rent to sales ratio, which is a simple ratio. What are they paying in rent divided by what are they paying in sales, right? I've got a Walgreens, for example, I listed yesterday that's paying $130,200 in rent, but they're doing $15 million in sales. That's less than a 1% rent to sales ratio. So I think that they're going to renew their lease and stay there for a long time. So I look at things like that with the property to see how it's performing, right? And then obviously, I'm going to look on the market, see what's going on, see what's sold, see what's being asked. And I have a pretty good feel of what the cap rate should be based on all the variables that I told you. And based on that, that's how I decide where to price this asset. And that's really why one Wendy's in one town that might look exactly the same, very well may trade at a different cap rate than another Wendy's that looks exactly the same. So when you're looking at those restaurants, is it a good thing to have a big group of competing restaurants in one area because it drives traffic? Or is it a bad thing because maybe there's more competition? It's a good question and it's very hard to answer. In general, I'm looking at national retailers in general, Walgreens and like Target and Lowe's and Home Depot and all these other things. Not necessarily that there's too much fast food. If I saw a lot of fast food in the corner, I would think that there's a very high likelihood that this is a good corner for fast food. But I have certain software I can run that will compare the average annual visits of one site to another. I just want to make sure that my site's not being cannibalized by a brand that are doing better on the other corner. And I'm also going to look at positioning. Is my corner a better corner? Is this a morning commute corner and I'm selling coffee, right? Is this a lunchtime spot and I'm selling lunch? Those are things that are all very important. Okay. So are you just a listing agent or if somebody comes in, they're like, I want to buy a Wendy's? I do mostly listing. I like to have a controlled listing. I think that's the way to go as a broker. Um, however, I've built up relationships with clients who have bought from me before and then I help them buy other things. Somebody came tomorrow and said, Dan, I want to buy Wendy's. I vet them heavily because I don't like to waste my time, but I would vet them heavily. And if I felt they were a serious buyer, I would certainly help them to find the best Wendy's possible for their needs. Okay. Because I mean, all the stuff you just talked about, that's a great resource. It says, I like the idea of this asset, but I don't understand how to do all those things that you're talking about. Are there brokers on the other side who are primarily buying agents? There's some. I mean, there's some really good ones out there, but not most. It's hard, I think, to make a living just being a buyer's agent. I've got one guy that comes to mind that he is only a buyer's agent. I love him. He's a great guy. It's just not my style. But this is not to say, again, I do a lot of almost 85% of my transactions that I list. I also represent the buyer, right? And that buyer pool increases. And obviously, I show deals to my close clients first. It's just not something that I actively go out and focus on. I don't go out and try to find buyers. Okay. Since we're talking to a lot of docs out there on this show, if a single doc or a group of docs said, man, this sounds like a great idea. I want to own a Chick-fil-A real estate. But you said you'd want to vet them. What would be the things to set yourself up that when you go to buy your first one could maybe give you a chance of looking real and being serious? Yeah. So definitely have your books in order, which would include proof of funds, as well as a personal financial statement from each of the investors in the entity or yourself, if you're the only one, and be willing to give that to the broker. Because I always tell people, if I have 10 offers on a property, which happens all the time, and somebody gives me PFS, a personal financial statement and a proof of funds, and I submit that with the LOI, the letter of intent to the seller, they're going to take it way more seriously 
than just an LOI from some guy that reached out, right? And I totally understand. So that's definitely important. I'd want to know, like, what's your history? I'd want to know what's your liquidity. Like, can you do this deal? Do you have enough cash to do this deal? Have you talked to a lender or do you need me to introduce you to a lender, which I'm happy to do? If you've talked to a lender and they know you and I can talk to them, that definitely helps your case. And then I appreciate transparency always. So I tell people, if you're not ready to buy, but you're reaching out to me, that's fine. I'm happy to talk, happy to add value. Even if you have another deal that you want me to look at, you want some eyes on a deal you're trying to learn, that's fine. But just be upfront. You know what I mean? Like be upfront. That's really important. Another thing is if I send you deals, give me feedback, like reply to them. I've got people that reach out to me, Dan, I need this is exactly what I need. I send them five or seven deals. I don't hear from them. I'm not going to continue to waste my time. Right. So that's very important. And then, you know, just to make sure that if I get you what you want, you will pull the trigger if you're in fact ready to do that. So to be upfront about that, this is what I'm looking for. And if I find it, I'm going to buy. If I have a feeling that's going to be the profile of somebody that is reaching out to me, I'll work with you eight days a week. (laughs) So really, you're there shopping to buy, not just window shopping is a big part of it. If you're new and maybe don't know what ducks to have in a row, be upfront and be like, hey, I want to do this, but I'm new. Can you help yes. help me get set up to be successful? Exactly. All right. So you say here in your bio, you talk about what doctors should know and know how to underwrite deals. What are the things when you talk about underwriting? This seems like this big black box, I think, for a lot of docs when you're new to this whole thing. What would you recommend in learning to underwrite them or what people to go to to help them underwrite them? Great question. So a great broker will help you underwrite. In terms of like what I can say to hone your skills in underwriting is look at as many deals as possible. I mean, I liken it to buying a house, right? When I go to buy a house, first thing that happens is I see a house. I'm like, oh, this is the one. Let's sign the docs. This is amazing. I love everything about it. I'm like, wait a minute. Let me go look at a couple more houses. I go to the next house and I'm like, Oh, this one has an attached garage. I think about that. That's what I want. Oh, this one's got a third floor. I want that. So it's the same thing with underwriting. Like You're not going to know what you're missing. You're not going to know what to look out for until you underwrite 50 or 100 deals. I'm not even kidding. Like The more you underwrite, the more you're going to flex those muscles and understand. And I highly recommend doing it with somebody else. Underwriting it yourself, having somebody else underwrite it and pairing notes and just continuously doing that. I mean, like when I started investing in commercial real estate, I did the same thing. I don't want to just look at one deal because if I look at one deal, that deal is going to be perfect to me, right? I don't see the problems in the first deal until I start seeing the positives in the other deals. And that's probably so then going back to the serious buyer, if you're in the process, letting somebody know like, hey, I just need to look at, I need to see a lot of deals so I can underwrite them or get on a mailing list where it's no work for the broker to send them to you. They just get spit out. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I guess there's even a place like a lot of the, in my group that we always critique deals that end up on uh, LoopNet because none of them are that great of deals by the time they make it to LoopNet, but it does put a lot of deals out there you can look at. Yeah. I do a LinkedIn live once a month and in February, I'm bringing on two friends of mine who are professional, essentially investment managers. They have their own fund. They buy a ton of properties. And that's going to be the focus of this whole event is we're going to underwrite deals and we're even going to ask the audience to submit their deals so we can underwrite them. But things like that, where you can watch other people underwrite a deal, excuse me, that's going to be very valuable as well. Awesome. And we'll have your LinkedIn stuff in the show notes. If somebody Perfect. wants to go check that out, they can find it. Now, we're usually about a month out and publishing. 
Will that still be available on LinkedIn recorded after the live yeah, event is this, over? This event is three events from now. I've got one next Friday. I've got okay. one in January and then I've got one in February, which is the one I'm referring to. So yeah. And even if you miss it, it'll still be available on my profile and you can use the same link to watch it during or after. Okay. So that's a good one. I want to go back to the, the vacant space and finding places to add value because this is something that I really like to, and I find very interesting, but it can be a little higher risk or how you de-risk it and just looking into those projects. So we're going to wrap up this first half of our conversation here. So please come back and join us for the next half of our discussion with Dan. And thank you for being here with us on Surgeon Syndicate. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.